0: Good morning, everyone. For those of you who just joined us, we're so glad you're here, and welcome to those who are downstairs in Simpson Hall, and also those who are joining us online. Uh, If you don't know who I am, I'm Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint, and I'm happy to be teaching Uh, this morning. We are in a series called The Unveiling, and it's a series about the Book of Romans. So if you happen to have a Bible handy, I want to get you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be diving into that this morning, whether it's paper or digital. And uh, hey, uh, if you're looking for teaching notes, you can go online, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and uh, you'll find all that you need there as well. And hey, Darcy, thank you for reading the scripture for us this morning. Did an excellent job, and I look forward to seeing you in the not-so-distant future. Well, hey, an obvious theme that kind of runs right down the middle of today's chapter is the theme of promise. So that's what we're going to be turning our attention to this morning in our time together. What is a promise? A promise is essentially a, a declaration or an assurance that somebody will do something or that something will happen. So a promise is is more than just a statement. A promise actually carries with it this idea of a guarantee. And I think most of us agree promises are pretty important. We live and we die by the promises that people make to us. Um, We order packages from Amazon and hope in the promise that they will arrive on time. Uh, We buy insurance with the promise that when our house burns down, somebody will pay up. Uh, We eat hot dogs, all beef hot dogs, all the time with the promise that a rat didn't accidentally fall into the sausage press. Nobody likes a broken promise. When people break promises, they break our trust. And, And then it's really difficult for us to believe them the next time. It's like the story of the boy who cried wolf. So it's, it's obviously very easy for most of us to find great examples of broken promises. We're good at it. We're good at pointing out the promises that other people break, but, you know, for the most part, we're also pretty good at covering up or explaining our own broken promises. So I promise that I will not mention our government's recent promise to reopen once our hospitalizations reached a certain number. Wait a minute, did I just break a promise? I think I did. Anyway, I couldn't resist. Uh, It'd be really hard to be a politician in this day and age. Let's pray for our government. Pray for those in leadership above us. Um, Wow, challenging times. You know, the famous orator, Dwight L. Moody, once said this. He said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. And I think he's correct in that. Because here's the thing. On the one hand, God does not lie. He cannot lie. So God is not going to make a false promise. But on the other hand, God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do anything. So he has the ability to keep all of his promises without any outside interference. God is the only one who is fully equipped to keep all of his promises. So so this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at a unique promise, a very unique promise that God made to a man called Abraham. And we're going to discover that this was a promise not only for Abraham, but in fact, this was a promise for us also. And there is great meaning behind this promise. But before we go there... Uh, I want to turn us to uh, the backstory. story, give us a little bit of a quick recap for those of you who are just joining us in the teaching series this morning uh, in the Book of Romans. Book of Romans, of course, was written by a man whose name was the Paul the Apostle, and he wrote it to a church in Rome about 2,000 years ago, and uh, this church was a church of about 100 people. Uh, they met together in separate little houses, or about four or five different house churches that would, they met together in, And and Paul was writing to a church for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons why he was writing to the church was because they were experiencing very real tension between two separate people groups. One of these people groups were the Jewish Christians, and the other people groups within the people group within the church were the non-Jewish Christians or the Gentile Christians. Now, some of the Jewish Christians may have thought because of their heritage that they had a better footing before God than their Gentile brothers and sisters. After all, they were God's chosen people. They had the law. They had the right of circumcision. Uh, They may have even thought that they themselves were maybe a step above their Gentile brothers and sisters. But on the other hand, the Gentile Christians would have maybe scorned the Jewish Christians because they maybe felt that they were too set in their ways. They were too restrictive. They they had too many traditions. And and perhaps they might not have thought that they they were quite as progressive as they were. So, In the first few chapters what paul has been doing is he's trying to to level the playing field between the jewish christians and the gentile christians by showing them that both jews and gentiles are lost and broken so that means that everyone no matter who you are everyone needs jesus to rescue them and to put them back together and paul of course has also been teaching about god's grace About how through Jesus we can have freedom and we can have cleansing. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Now last week, uh, we we looked at the very beginning of the chapter, of of chapter 4. And we learned that faith counts for everything and works count for nothing. And, and, and in this chapter, Paul has begun to show that, that Abraham was declared righteous before God, but he was declared righteous before God by faith alone. It was before he was ever circumcised. It was before the law ever showed up on the scene, but it was only by faith that Abraham was actually in right standing before God. Now, in the latter part of chapter 4, which we're looking at today, Paul is still talking about Abraham. And as our predecessor and as our prototype in the faith, We are going to learn about what it means to receive righteousness through faith. So we're going to look at this promise to Abraham. And we're going to discover three aspects of this promise that I think are really, really important. And we're going to discover what those aspects mean to each of us. So here's the first one. The promise is to inherit the whole world. Now, you'll notice in verse 13 that Paul says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that they would be heirs of the world. In other words, they would inherit the entire world, the entire planet. Now, what's that all about? Well, here's something important to consider is that the land was always an important part of the original promise to Abraham. Now, you might remember the story you might, from last week, or you may have read it yourself, but you might remember that when Abraham first encountered the Lord in Genesis chapter 12, he was given this huge multifaceted promise. And, and God essentially promised, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Uh, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. But this promise also included children and land. See, land was a critical part of the promise from the beginning. And of course, this is where the idea of the promised land comes from but what paul's saying now that is that through jesus this vision of land has been revised and expanded in fact the new promised land is far greater than just a small strip of territory in the middle east it stretches all the way north and all the way south and all the way east and all the way west This land includes the entire globe, and this is the inheritance for Abraham and his offspring. Now, I just want to camp on this idea of inheritance for a few moments this morning by making a few key points about it, okay? Because I think it's really important. First of all, the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus will be the heir of all things. So all things will be his inheritance. Let me just read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what it's saying is that Jesus has been appointed by God to be the heir of all things. He is the heir apparent. All things were created through him, but also all things will belong to him. And that includes the world that we live in. Beverly, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the world. The entire third rock from the sun. But also, Jesus' inheritance happens to be our inheritance. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul actually begins to expand on this idea. And I don't want to say too much about it. I don't want to give you the spoiler, okay? But I do want to read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 8 to just give us an idea of what it's talking about here. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 to 17. It says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Notice what it says there. We are heirs of God, and we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Well, why are we heirs? Well, it's because through Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus, we have been adopted into God's family. We become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This means, then, that we are sons and daughters of the King. We have, as believers in Christ, a royal inheritance, now what is that inheritance? Well, if you continue reading on in chapter 8, Paul begins to talk about it. He, he talks about the future resurrection. He talks about the return of Jesus. He talks about there will be a new heaven and a new earth when, when Jesus will return and he'll right all wrongs. He'll fix everything. And in the end, we, his royal family, will rule and reign with him over all creation throughout all eternity. That's the end of the story. Now, as followers of Jesus, I realize we don't often think about ourselves as royalty, do we? But that's precisely what we are. Let me give you another verse. First of Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. It says this, speaking to believers in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is true of you. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. As followers of Jesus, we are part of a royal family. We are a royal priesthood. This means, then, that we are kings, and we are queens, and we are princes, and we are princesses. Now, normally, what I'd love to do is I'd get you to turn to somebody beside you and say, hey, you're the best-looking king I've seen all day, or hey, you're the best-looking queen I've seen all day, but this is a time of COVID. So if you're sitting beside someone this morning, maybe you might do that. If you can't, just do this. Just look at them and go... Go ahead this is church we can have fun go ahead tell somebody they're a king sell somebody they're a queen all right awful quiet in the house and the reason i get you to do that this morning is sometimes you have to energize your whole body to believe something to be true it is true you are part of god's royal family you are kings and queens and princes and princesses now clearly Clearly, we have not yet received our full inheritance, but one day we will. And we know this is true. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And even though we are not experiencing it in the now, still it is a present reality with a future inheritance. We are still kings and queens in the now. You know, when I think about this, I I think about the story of, of Peggy Lane Bartels. Uh, Peggy Lane was, was the uh, secretary to the embassy of Ghana in Washington for 30 years. And, and she was originally from Ghana herself. She was from a very small city known as Otuam. In 2008, the king of Otuam died. He died at the age of 90. And so the elders kind of figured out, well, we've got to figure out how to find a new king. And so they followed the tradition that they had followed for many, many years. They gathered together, the elders, and they began to pray. And then they pour schnapps on the ground. And as they poured schnapps on the grounds, they would read off the names of all the members of the family, the royal family, who were still alive. And that moment, when steam would rise up from the ground, as the name was being read of that person, they would become the king. Well, wouldn't you know, as they read off Peggy Lane's name, steam rose up from the ground. And so Peggy became the new king of Otwam. So what did they do? They flew her to Ghana. And when she showed up, there was a big parade. There was a big festival. They marched her through the city on a litter. They put a crown of gold upon her head. Now, in case you're wondering, you might be wondering this morning, why is she referred to a king and not a queen? Well, she had the same question. She pointed out to the elders. Don't you know? I am a woman. And they said, well, you, we only have one appointment. It's appointment for a king. Take it or leave it. She said, I'll take it. So she became queen, uh, King Peggy. Well, today, Peggy Lane, she continues to work in Washington at her job in the embassy day by day, but at night, she continues to be the king. Back in Ghana, she owns an eight-bedroom palace, thousands of acres of land. She has a chauffeur and a personal chef. While she's in Washington, she drives a car, she does her own laundry, and she makes her own meals. Nobody calls her a king in Washington, but she is a king nonetheless you know I, I tried to imagine how, how paradigm shifting this idea would have been for those original Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago I mean who were they they were like from the lowest class of culture many of them were slaves and here they were they're were huddled together in this little living room and Paul's letter was being read to them in their tiny little house churches and and, and they were s- situated in the poorest region the lowest level of land and they would look up around them and they would see the seven hills of Rome where all the powerful people lived. The fact that they had to crane their necks to look up was a constant reminder to them of just how powerless they were. And yet, as they heard Paul's letter and as they looked out their window to one of those hills, they could not miss the palace of the most powerful person in the world, the emperor Caesar nero self-proclaimed son of the gods and yet paul was saying to them nobody is calling you a king but you are a king nonetheless you are co-heirs with jesus christ the true son of god and one day You will inherit the entire world, which includes every one of those seven hills looming above you. That's our promise. But this brings us to the second aspect of the promise. Who does this promise apply to? In other words, who gets to be king? Who gets it? Well, the promise is to a multitude of nations. Paul says this in promised inheritance belongs to Abraham and also to his offspring. But his offspring is not limited to Abraham's biological descendants. Instead, it says that his offspring includes many nations. And what Paul is doing here is he's quoting from Genesis chapter 17. Uh, Let's look at those verses together. I'm going to read right from Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. Here's the promise. Behold, the Lord is speaking to Abraham. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And look at that, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Who gets to be king? Who gets to share in this inheritance? Paul says the royal family will be from all nations because through Christ Jesus, God has chosen to draw his family circle much wider. And he has included it, uh, he's drawn it to include those who will call on the name of Jesus and those who will share in the faith of Abraham. So it includes the Jews, yes, absolutely, but it also includes the Gentiles as well. People from every nation, from every tongue, and from every tribe. So let me get really specific for us this morning here at Crosspoint. Uh, for those of us who are in the room downstairs and for those of you who are, on, uh, who are at home. <clears throat> some of you might recognize some of these places that I'm talking about this morning. But this is who it includes. It includes those from Ethiopia and Sudan and the Congo and Egypt. It includes those from Russia and, and the Netherlands and Spain and the Ukraine. It includes the Philippines, and China, and Korea, and Japan. All of you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It includes those from England, and Ireland, and Scotland. My mother was a Macintosh. Okay, from Mexico, and Brazil, and Guatemala, and Somalia, and Syria, and Iraq, and Trinidad, and all the islands. Our First Nations people here, and our indigenous people south of the border. We are all members. All of us are members of this royal family through Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Gentiles is a pretty big group, isn't it? There are a lot of nations stored up in just this one word, Gentiles. Now, I want to take a moment this morning. I I want to show you how this promise of Abraham is being fulfilled in unprecedented ways in our day. See, if you pay attention, if you pay attention to what God is doing in our world today, you will discover that Abraham is the father of many nations more than ever before. Let me present three observations about why this is true. Number one, our Jesus family in the world has become what is called multi-centered. You know, the center of Christianity has always been shifting throughout history. What do we mean by the center of his, uh, Christianity? We mean where the most Christians are, where there's the most Christian influence, where God is moving among Christians. Uh, you know, originally it was, of course, in Jerusalem, and then it moved to Antioch. And then from Antioch, it began moving to like, Asia Minor, and then eventually it got to Rome. And then, and then after a while, it split into the East and the West. But eventually, the center of uh, Christianity moved to Europe. And it sat there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Well... In the last 100 years, there has been a huge shift away from Europe. Let's check out this diagram. In 1910, two-thirds of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America. So about 66% of the world's Christians lived in Europe. But there has been a rapid change in the last 100 years. Revivals, moves of God, Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, so many different things. By 2010, only 25% of the world's Christians now live in Europe. And North America is really just over 10% of the world's Christians. And if you watch the data, the number of Christians in North America is actually slipping. What this means is that Christianity is the most thoroughly multi-ethnic religion of all time. It is a worldwide religion. As a matter of fact, 33% of the world's populations follow Jesus. And it also means that the center is changed. It is now multi-centered. The center has moved away from Europe, and the center is now moving into Africa, and Latin America, and into Asia. And what this means is that our royal family... Our royal family has become, for the first time, a multitude of nations, more than ever before in human history. That's amazing what God is doing in our day. Here's a second observation. Our Jesus family is on move in the world. Did you know that there are 258 million international migrants? What is an international migrant? An international migrant is someone who has lived for more than one year in a country other than the country in which they were born. So that's 3.5% of the world's population today are international migrants. To put it in perspective, this number has tripled since 1970. So people are moving around the globe, and they're they're moving around the globe for various reasons. Some are moving because of education, mostly because of education and work, but others are moving because of conflict, violence, or or, uh, climate change. But here's the most interesting thing. Nearly half of those international migrants that are moving are Christians. They are followers of Jesus. Which means that God is moving his royal family around the world. And wherever they go, they are bringing the blessing. They are bringing the promise. They are bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's a last observation. Our Jesus family is our neighbor. Let's talk about Canada. Since 1960, immigration patterns have, in Canada have changed a lot. Prior to 1960, most of our immigration uh, came from people coming from, mostly from Britain and Europe. But for many great reasons, this has shifted now towards Asia, the Middle East, and South America. And what this means is that all the nations of the world are here in Canada, just outside the door. What an amazing day that we live in. And there are a couple of implications to this reality. Here's the first one. First of all, we have this incredible opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the love of Jesus with the nations of the world, to invite them to come and be part of God's family. But here's the second implication. We get to have a royal family reunion with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because so many of them have joined us from around the globe globe who are Jesus followers. So this means that we get to learn from each other. We get to grow together. We get to share in the promise together. By the way, interesting fun fact. This is worth noting. Between 2001 and 2009, the number of conservative Protestant Christians in Canada actually increased. It increased from 8% up to 11%. And they're quite well, it's like, really? there are more of us? How did that happen? Like, was there a revival, an extensive evangelistic campaign? Was there a worldwide pandemic, and suddenly a lot of babies were born? Well, the truth is, it was none of these things. It happened because our royal family has moved to Canada. Remember, half of the world's migrants are Christians. In fact, the the sociologist Reginald Bibby will say that if it wasn't for new Canadians coming to Canada, the church would actually be in decline rather than in a stage of growth. And so we owe so much to the nations of the world coming and being part of our royal family here in Canada. So the promise is to inherit the world. The promise is to a multitude of nations. What is the third aspect of this promise? It's this. The promise must depend on faith. And, and this is an argument that, that's been running through Paul's letter since chapter 2. It's whether we are justified by faith or whether we're justified by works of the law. And, and some of the Jewish Christians, of course, were insisting, no, you've got to obey the law. You've got to come out under the law. But Paul continues to say, if you go this way, it is a dead-end street. Because nobody, absolutely nobody, can keep the law perfectly. Everybody sins. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. And, and, and in verse 13, he says this. He says, the role of the law is actually to reveal your failures. And the result of the law inevitably will bring God's wrath. So, if you, did, if you depend on the law, he says, there is no guarantee. There's absolutely no guarantee of this promise. Now, what good is a promise without a guarantee? So, would you jump out of an airplane if they told you, I promise you, the chute will open. But there are no guarantees. If uh, would you purchase a self-driving car, if they said to you, "I promise you, this, I guarantee that it will stop at most traffic lights 80 percent of the time." See, a guaranteed promise is something that is only going to happen 100 percent of the time. So, so how do we get a guarantee on this promise? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says this. He says, That's, "That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all so so this promise paul says it's 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 guaranteed through faith when Abraham believed God's promise, it counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't based on good works. What was it based on? It was based on faith. And Paul reminds us this again in the text today. He says, you know, Abraham, he had every reason not to believe. I mean, first of all, his wife, Sarah, was barren. She couldn't have any children. And the other hand, Abraham was old, right? Which means that he likely had a, a very low motility rate. Um, and if you don't know what that is, you can look it up. It, it, Has something to do with swimming anyways uh, all the evidence said all the evidence said that their chances of having children were as good as dead but Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist that's what it says in verse 17 he believed in a God of creation he also believed in a God of recreation A God who raises the dead and if God can raise the dead then surely God can give life to this barren womb and so when God promised that he would be the father of many nations what did Abraham do Abraham it says he took him at his word he did not weaken he did not waver he kept trusting he kept clinging to the promise and as a result the more he did that it says his faith grew stronger until he was fully convinced in his own heart and his mind that God would keep his promise now, here's the thing, is, is that Paul says this. He says, you know what? These words, they weren't just written for Abraham. They were written for you. And they were written for me. And we too need the faith of Abraham if we are to enter into this promise. Look what it says in verse 24 and 25. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed. In a God who raises the dead, and so do we. And so, if we want a guarantee of God's promise, what do we look to? We look to a man hanging on a tree and we look to an empty tomb. That is our guarantee. And when we do that in faith, we become descendants of Abraham, we become the spiritual children of the promise. And I realize, I mean, we don't often think about it this way, right? I mean, do you often think about yourself, I'm, a, I'm an heir of Abraham, I'm a child of Abraham, right? There is that old camp song, you remember the old camp song? Father Abraham and many sons. Anyone, you know, sing along? No? Okay. Yes, I mean, I want right arm left. Okay, yeah, you know that song, right? That's about the only time I've ever heard it in a song, right? We don't often think about the fact that we are children of Abraham. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Abraham is our spiritual ancestor, and we are his spiritual offspring. You know, in, in the last uh, decade, I, I've re- really become fascinated with this idea of discovering who my ancestors were. Part of it is because I, I had to prove my genealogy to, uh, in order to receive my uh, Métis status. But part of it as well since then is is, is I just, I'm just starting to geek out on it. Like I, I, I got a subscription to Ancestry.com. I did the whole DNA testing and all of that. Um, and, and, you know... Uh, yeah, I sold my information to science. Okay, I get that. Okay, but uh, it's amazing. It's amazing what you will discover about your ancestors if you just continue to look a little bit deeper. So, so a number of years ago, one of my nieces went to uh, Winnipeg to look at the geneal- genealogical archives there because my, my family tree comes out of, uh, comes out of Winni- Winnipeg in the Red River settlement. So she, she was there and she was talking to a priest and uh, she received some help from this priest. And she discovered very quickly that this priest was in fact a relative of hers, that they were related. And when the priest discovered this, he started geeking out. He's like, Oh, come here. I got to show you this. And he starts pulling out his family tree and he says, you will never guess who your distant relatives are. So then he points to two names on the extended family tree. Do you want to know who they are? You'll never guess who. Okay. Here's the first one. Yes. Uh, no, it looks like Fergie, but no, that is Madonna. Okay. And, uh, She's 62 years old, she's still cranking out the hits, okay? But yes, she is an ancestor of mine, which actually makes absolutely no sense about Madonna because her maiden name is Ciccone, which is Italian, but her mother is a French-Canadian. So, she's like a distant, 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 distant cousin. I'm, I'm kind of famous. <laughs> well, here's the other one. It's always a surprise to find out who you're related to, isn't it? Yeah, that's Céline, okay, Céline Dion. Now, uh, when I I discovered this, of course, I didn't run up to all of my middle-aged buddies and say, you have no idea who I'm related to. Céline Dion, me and her, we're related. Didn't do that. Um, Now, she's a great talent, she really is, but she's not on my playlist, okay? And you'll never drag me to one of her concerts, ever, ever, ever. Not near, not far, wherever you are, I'm never going, okay? but she's brilliant she's brilliant but it's really kind of cool to have two famous people in your family tree to to know that there's there's this common lineage that's there but you know who I'm really glad who's in my family tree father Abraham my spiritual ancestor because through the faith of Abraham I've been adopted into another family tree and so have you the royal family Of the king of kings and the lord of lords the living son of god jesus christ do you know this morning that you are a king or a queen or prince or a princess do you know that you are a member of god's royal family and that one day you will inherit the entire world if this is true how might this shape the vision of your life How might it shape how you see yourself daily? How you live? How you love? How you leave a legacy? You are a member of God's royal family. Not because of what you've done. Not because of what you'll ever do. But because you share in the faith of our ancestor, Abraham. And that's the only way. Let's pray together. And just as our heads are bowed, I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to just reflect on what this means to you and what God is saying to you. Give you a couple moments in silence as the music plays, and then I'll close us in prayer. What is God saying to you? And what does he want you to do about it? Let's pray. Father, we are in awe this morning of your ability to keep your promise of how you are at work in our world today, in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our own lives, bringing your royal family together, being faithful to your promise that your family will be a multitude of nations from all around the globe. And we thank you this morning that that through faith, we get to be part of that, that we get to be adopted into your family tree through faith. And God, I pray for each and every one of us this week that we will walk with our heads held high, with our hearts full, knowing that we are royalty. And we wear this not because we are proud, because we do not earn it, we did not deserve it, but we wear this with with just sheer love in our hearts because God, you have done this. You have done this. And so we reflect all glory to you and to you alone. Help us, Lord, to live as your royal family. We praise you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast.